Dear Habits ladies, I want to start this lecture off with prayer and humble submission. This lesson has triggering components. We know someone we love who has been abused. You might be the one. We know someone who has lost a child. You might be the one who has. We know power structures that we can do nothing to change. And we wrestle with how God deals with the problem of evil in this fallen and broken world. Every part of the next chapters in Samuel lets us know that the realities of evil, of sin, and death exist. They are close to home. These realities reach into the lives of our friends, of our family, and into our own hearts. Our church has resources to offer if you have personally been through this type of tragic suffering. And we have the wonderful, merciful Savior, Jesus, our comforter, counselor, friend. He is the one who rescues. We have him. So would you pray with me that the Holy Spirit would give us his insights and his grace and his mercy as we approach this section of scripture. Dear Heavenly Father, we open your word today seeking your wisdom, not wisdom of this world, but yours. May our hearts be renewed and refreshed in who you are. We thank you for Jesus, your son, who rescues and redeems us to be in your holy presence by his precious blood. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit as we delve into your word. May all of us learn that you would, may all of us learn what you would have for us to learn this morning. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our study leads us to one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. It's curious that it's famous to those of us who grew up in the church from a young age, because I cannot recall a single time in Sunday school that I learned about David and Bathsheba. It's obviously not a children's story. Or maybe if you grew up in church like I did, when you're a little older in high school, this story is told to you in such a way as to impress on you the modesty purity culture. The story of Bathsheba bathing on a roof is sometimes used as a reminder not to wear spaghetti strap tank tops to youth group. <laughs> so much of scripture is interpreted through the lens of media. So maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but you do know the story of David Bathsheba famous paintings from centuries before, or the movie with Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward, or even headlines in the recent years. Nevertheless, we have been exposed to the idea that Bathsheba was a seductress, and it hasn't been until recently that Bathsheba has actually been described to be in a situation of powerful abuse. John Piper used the word rape a decade ago, and in 2019, there were many debates online of the sexual abuses within the church, media comments made during the Southern Baptist Convention, and there are even still scholars that handle the ambiguity of the scripture's detail in chapter 11 with the tension that Bathsheba becoming the queen mother of Solomon through the role she played with Nathan in Solomon's succession was, did she come to David in adultery with her eye on advancement? The thing is, you learn so much more from God's word when you actually read it instead of being informed by culture's perception of scripture. 
as an example, raise your hand if you are 100% certain that Bathsheba was bathing on a roof. Scripture never says that Bathsheba was on a rooftop, nor does it say that she was fully exposed. In researching for this lecture, I found sources that indicated Bathsheba was keeping Torah, she was keeping the law to do her ritual cleansing after her menstruation, and she could have been wearing a robe or dress even. It is possible for her, for her to have been on a roof because roofs were used for bathing in a hot climate, but roofs in that time period might have even had a lattice. Or, also likely, she could have been in a courtyard. Scripture just doesn't say where Bathsheba was, only what she was doing, which indicates that she was following Torah, keeping purity laws. In these verses, we only know where David was. And scripture tells us that David was sitting in Jerusalem, taking a nap into the evening, and strolling on the roof at the time when kings go out to war. I think many of us have heard that David was not where he was supposed to be, but I think we all wrestle with how did, a, did David, a man after God's own heart, get to where he wasn't acting as a man after God's own heart. In my lecture today, I want to illuminate from scripture what scripture layers on top of itself. These literary patterns help us to see what God says in his revealed word. So to begin chapter 11, we actually have to start in the first three chapters of the Bible. The literary design in scripture is there for us to build and connect scripture to scripture. These biblical themes help us to meditate and layer meaning after meaning to know our Lord all the more. In Genesis 1, God saw that it was good seven times, and he gave the creation mandate to rule and to be the image bearer of God. And God gave Adam abundance and blessing, and he gave a moral command, Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. At the end of chapter 2, the woman was made out of man's rib, and they were naked and knew no shame. But we all know what comes next. Chapter 3, the fall. This is when the serpent shows up and he deceives the woman. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve were already like God. They were made in his image. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it had a pleasing appearance and that the tree was desirable for making one wise, she took some of, the, of its fruit and ate. Adam and Eve took their autonomy and their desire into their own hands. God then confronts the man and the woman, and they blame and accuse each other in Genesis 3, 14 through 16. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's curse of the serpent stands and God's judgment of Adam and Eve is to exile them from his presence in a severe mercy lest they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, forever separated from him. God's promise, this promise, to have the seed of the woman to crush the head of the snake is called the proto-evangelium. It is a compound of two Greek words, protos meaning first 
and evangelium meaning good news or gospel. And the promise of Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of a savior in the Bible. And the reason I retold the fall narrative is because our chapters to study this week concerning David and Bathsheba are layered directly on top of the fall narrative in Genesis 3. So now to turn to look at our study in chapters 11 and 12, we need to have one more pullout from last week's chapter 10. Kathy described the shame and the nakedness that David's ambassadors faced at the hand of Hanun, the son of Nahash. Did you know Nahash means serpent in Hebrew? Hanan is the seed of a serpent, and he's showing hostility and enmity toward the ambassadors that David sent. David does end chapter 10 with killing 700 charioteers of the Armians and 40,000 horsemen at the battle. But his victory in chapter 10 is only after the Armians had reassembled. Job and Abashai had made the Ammonites flee originally because David had sent his military commander Job into battle. Did you catch that red flag? David sent. The verb sent is used 11 times in our chapters and is always displaying the one who has the power and the authority in that circumstance. David didn't originally go out to fight, though. For the first time in David's story, David is not battling the serpent-like enemy face-to-face. Remember when David was young and faced Goliath with faith in the Lord? Goliath, also described like a serpent with armor of bronze shining like scales, David cut his head off. David wasn't king yet, only anointed to be king. And now David is king, and he has the power to send military commanders into battle. But now that he is older, has he yielded his authority to rule, to have dominion, by fighting the seed of the serpent from a distance? I cannot take credit for finding this connection to the seed of the serpent. I recently finished reading The Serpent in Samuel, a messianic motif by Brian A. Verrett. He pointed out that whenever there is a serpent-like creature that is against the seed of the woman, it is a motif, a pattern, where we need to examine the text to see if there is a person coming to defeat the serpent and if that person is indeed the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. We are always to be looking for a savior. When we zero in on the first chapters, excuse me, first verses of chapter 11, the author of Samuel is making that little red flag blatant. At the time the kings go out to war, David sent Joab and all of Israel to fight, and David was sitting in Jerusalem. The next verse says that David arose from his bed, which tells you that he was laying down. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, Eli, the priest, was sitting and laying down. Could this be an indication that at this point, David was not listening to the Lord, just like Eli? We are quickly exposed to David's fall in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Just like in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall is described with how Eve saw, desired, and took. And also in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And in Genesis chapter 12, when Pharaoh's officials saw Sarai and they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. David is now described as the one who saw someone very beautiful. And the beautiful in Hebrew is the beautiful for good. 
And David is the king on a high place. And in chapter 12, the Lord will judge David for taking. David sent and inquired after the woman. The author of Samuel gives dignity to Bathsheba by giving her a double identity. She's a daughter. The bat in her name means daughter. And her full name means daughter of the oath. And she's a married to Uriah the Hittite. And even though Uriah is a Hittite and not an Israelite, his name is an Israelite name that means the Lord is my light. And both Uriah and Bathsheba are demonstrating with their initial action that they keep Torah and honor the Lord. We also know that Bathsheba's father and her husband are a part of David's elite warriors, his mighty men. But David ignores the interwoven connections that Bathsheba had with him, and David sent messengers to get her. Roberta sent me a fascinating article that planned out three different possible timelines for the age of Bathsheba in the story. In one of the timelines, she might have been as young as 20. The article also explained that Bathsheba would have been near the palace and involved with palace life her entire life. So maybe the reason David doesn't recognize her at first is because she's no longer a girl, but a woman. With this insight of her possible young age, there is the reality that she would not have had the power to refuse the power of the king. David lays with Bathsheba. She returns to her house and sent and told David that she was pregnant. The only words that Bathsheba speaks in these two chapters and she does have the power to send them to King David. Now, David is powerless to change the outcome of his sin. So what does he do? David sent to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And through the abrupt actions of how David commands his messengers, we are seeing David's urgent desperation for power and control. David conceives of a plan that results in more sin and death, Again, just like the fall in the garden ushers in sin and death to the first relationships, it also spreads violence. We will see it played out in how David causes Uriah the Hittite to die. So Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, arrives at the summons to the palace. David tries three different ways to tempt and entice Uriah to go and be with Bathsheba so David can blame someone else for his sin. All of David's callous attempts fail. Even getting Uriah drunk fails. Uriah, the one who is rightly honoring the Lord, is a stark contrast to the king who is sinning. Uriah has a defense for his right actions to David in verse 11. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The irony of the Hittite answering back to the king who's taking long naps and sleeping with another man's wife should not be lost on us. We should be tragically appalled that the man who desired to build a house for the Lord and received a covenant promise to have an everlasting kingdom established by the Lord has continued to sink lower and lower in trying to cause someone else to take on the consequences of his choices. Again, a parallel to the blaming in Genesis 3 and when desire gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. We see how King David goes from being that parallel of Eve in the fall narrative to now being the parallel of Cain in the Cain and Abel story. David devises a plan to kill one of his mighty men, a brother in arms. 
2 Samuel 11:14. And it happened in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And it happened that Uriah was placed near the wall and was struck down along with some of the troops and some of David's servants, and Uriah the Hittite died. Job sent the detailed events of the battle back to David and protected the messenger, because other messengers have been killed, <laughs> by referencing Abimelech, who was killed by a millstone hurled down by a woman in Judges chapter 9. Job knows that David has killed those other messengers for delivering news, and Job knows that God was the impetus behind Abimelech's death when he was too close to the wall. It's because of this, excuse me, it's because this is how God judged Abimelech. Abimelech was Gideon's son. Abimelech had seized power by murdering 70 of his half-brothers on a stone when he set himself up as king. Judges 9.56 explains, Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father. David is unfazed by this messenger's report. In verse 25, David, um, from Robert Alter's Hebrew translation, says, Thus shall you say to Joab, let this not seem evil in your eyes, for the sword devours sometimes one way and sometimes another. My paraphrase, am I my brother's keeper? We are next told that Uriah's wife heard that Uriah is dead and she mourned for her husband. Another indication that Bathsheba was not seducing King David. David has Bathsheba brought to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. In the ESV, the last verse of chapter 11 reads, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Alter's translation of the Hebrew says, The thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What David has excused by his own wisdom, let this not seem evil in your eyes, God calls it evil in his eyes. So the Lord confronts, just like in the garden. In chapter 12, God sent Nathan to David. And Nathan tells the parable of the rich man and the poor man and the one little ewe lamb who is like a daughter. Remember, Bathsheba's name means daughter. And that the rich man took the poor man's sole lamb. David must have assumed he was the poor man when he burned with anger against the man who took without pity. And he pronounced the judgment of death and the full judgment of the law from Exodus 22.1. David says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. We have explanation points in our Bible when Nathan exclaims, you are the man. I read this exclamation point in two ways, in distress and in judgment. Nathan is distressed. We are distressed because we need a king with pity who does not take. I also read this exclamation with judgment. We all do. We look back on Genesis 3 and assume a posture of, no, shouldn't have taken that apple. But we are appalled when the powerful use their power to take. When we see the fall played out like this, we rightly judge that taking and blaming and doing right in our own eyes really does bring death. The Lord judges rightly, and our next section of scripture shows what the Lord says. The Lord demonstrates his original abundance and blessing that he gave David. Gave, just like in the garden. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Because you have done this, the echoed words of the garden fall, there is judgment. God now presents his judgment of David. In verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. This is the Lord stating the reality that David's power in his own kingdom is bereft. Having wives and having the political wives of your predecessor meant that you had authority. In the future chapters where we read of Absalom doing exactly what the Lord says will happen, it's in this context of taking power from David. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses that he has sinned. And Nathan replies that the Lord has taken away David's sin and that he's not going to die as David's own judgment had pronounced. But this next verse is one of the hardest verses in the Bible for a lot of people. Verse 14. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. We wrestle with this. However, it is the same universal consequence for us all. In Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. How do we accept God's forgiveness for David and what he has done? How do we wrestle with God when the Lord afflicted the child and he became ill to death? In studying for this lecture, I came across explanations that helped me. The first explanation was presented in a podcast I listened to called Faith and Other Oddities. They explained that every firstborn male child in Israel and every firstborn male animal, any male who opened the womb in Israel, was given to the Lord. Families had a way to purchase their son who opened the womb back for five shekels. But families like Hannah and Elkanah at the beginning of 1 Samuel did give their son to the Lord. Samuel was given to the Lord all the days of his life. Samuel's dedication to the Lord honored Hannah's oath. Bathsheba, her name meaning daughter of the, no of the oath, connects to Hannah because the son had opened her womb he is also in the presence of the Lord. David even explained through his behavior, excuse me, his behavior to his servants in the same manner. Can I bring him back again? I am going to him and he will not come back to me. Another connection that I found was this. When David arose from his imploring and fasting to the realization that the child was gone, he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped and came back to his house and asked that food be set out for him, and he ate. Hannah was exactly the same. She had implored and fasted, and then she worshipped, and then she ate when she was first introduced. This scriptural connection helped me, along with Isaiah 57.1. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. That this severe mercy spared the child from the sword that does not depart from David's house. And that the Lord kept and is keeping this innocent one in his very presence helps me with the tension that an innocent one has died. 
The author of Samuel also offers comfort, inserted here in verse 24. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her. None of these verbs brush what David did as evil in the eyes of the Lord under the rug, but the author does change the wording between David and Bathsheba, and we are now told that she is David's wife. Scripture says that she bore a son and called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and called his name Jedidiah by the grace of the Lord. Jedidiah means God's friend or beloved of the Lord, and Solomon's name builds off the word for peace. There is also comfort in knowing that Bathsheba and her sons are honored in the Gospels. Matthew's genealogy records her as the mother of Solomon, identified as Uriah's wife. Luke's genealogy has Jesus' lineage going through Bathsheba's son, Nathan, obviously named after Nathan the prophet. God records her story in Jesus' own genealogy. God honors her in the line of the Savior. To end our chapter, we have David being sent for by Joab. Joab has cut off the water supply of the city, and Joab will be given honor and credit for conquering the city if David doesn't come, much like how David earned loyalty away from Saul. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. And David took the crown from their king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent, which is 75 pounds of gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron pixes and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. From here on out, the story of David is set in the realities of sin's consequences. God will still be faithful to his covenant promise, but God will not remove the consequences of David's own pronounced judgment. The rich man will pay back fourfold for the lamb he has taken. Four sons of David will be lost. The sword will not depart from David's house. The family will tear itself apart, and the nation of Israel will eventually end up in exile. When you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. We can understand sin's cost when we see the details laid out like this, maybe more so than just seeing, desiring, and taking the fruit in the garden. We know we live in this fallen world where we've experienced pain and suffering because of sin done to us, against us, or sin that we have done. When we saw, desired, and we took in our own power. We've been confronted with our sin by the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit using the words of another. We know we wrestle with God allowing an innocent young one to perish. But David and Bathsheba's story truly points forward to Jesus. Not only is Jesus the offspring of David and Bathsheba, whose throne is established forever, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is God's salvation. Salvation for when you confess and repent for the times that you saw, desired, and took and salvation for when you are experiencing the pain and suffering of this fallen world. I don't know where you stand in regards to salvation right now, but I know the one that you can turn to. The one who gives peace, comforts, calls you his friend, forgives you when you confess. 
He is the king who had pity and gave his own life. He loves and he redeems. His name is Jesus. May I pray for us? Lord, our hearts know when we see, desire, and take. Our hearts break when we've experienced the abuses of power in this fallen world. We cry out for salvation and mercy through confession and through desperation. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us from death. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for crushing the serpent. May we know you and love you all the more from our time of study and our discussions today. Through the power of your Holy Spirit and your precious name. Amen. I'll, I'll just stand.